Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this week's show. You are listening to episode number 29 of the GateWorld Podcast. And today David and I are talking about Stargate the Movie, an old classic from 1994. We'll also give you a preview of our new interview with Bill Nye, who guest starred in the Stargate Atlantis episode Brainstorm. And of course, there's lots of Stargate news, site features, and listener mail. It will take you a million light years from home. But will it call the next morning? I don't get it. (laughs) The GateWorld podcast starts right now. My name is Darren. And my name is David. Welcome to our show. And we shall be your hosts for the 29th time. The 29th, beloved 29. Stargate News. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for February 10th, 2009. Former Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Atlantis actress Amanda Tapping is sponsoring a series of charity auctions to raise funds for the North Star Montessori Elementary School in Vancouver, B.C., Items being auctioned on eBay include a 20-minute Skype chat with Amanda, an autographed arm sling worn by Amanda on Stargate SG-1, and a guided behind-the-scenes set visit and lunch with Amanda tapping during the filming of Sanctuary. Up to four people for that one. And looking at these auctions uh, right now, as of Sunday night, the 20-minute Skype chat is at $710 US, the sling is at $760, and the set tour and lunch for four is at $2,075. Leave it to Amanda to give her time to a noble cause. That's pretty remarkable numbers here, Amanda fans turning out. And it actually says the $2,075 for the set visit, the reserve has not yet been met. Yeah, they're expecting more for it. Well, if you're interested in bidding on any of these items, just go to gateworld.net and look for the links to eBay. <laughs> Ben Browder's 2009 project, well, one of them, is going to be hitting a little bit closer to home than normal. Uh, GateWorld has learned that Browder is going to be participating in Freeze Frame. Freeze Frame is a working title. It's based on a true story telling how Ben's character went into a bar and held it up with an unloaded gun. His objective was not to get money, but to get killed. Sources told GateWorld the numbers that the preview gets on YouTube will play a big part in deciding the film's fate. Ben is currently the only actor cast. So it sounds like this is something that they want to make, but they're they're maybe using YouTube to gauge interest in it before they decide to fully commit right. to it? Before people pony up with the money. That's right. Interesting. To create it. Well, I saw the clip, and it, it looks like it would be a very cool role for Ben. He does sort of dark and detached really well, I think. Yeah, I think it would be a a really great one for him to show his stuff. So let's hope that it gets greenlit. Visit the YouTube clip. We have the link in the GateWorld News Story. And there are some new comments this week on Stargate Universe from former Atlantis executive producer Joseph Malazzi, who serves as a consulting producer for Stargate Universe. He told About.com in an interview that the show will be focusing less on visiting planets and meeting humanoid English-speaking aliens, and much more about the ensemble cast and what's going on on board the ship. What do you think about that comment? Um, I have no opinion. You have no opinion? I have no opinion. What do you think? Um, I really, really like that they are going for more of a character-centered show. Oh, yeah, I like absolutely. That. But to lose Stargate travel, in other words, travel to other planets, in other words, meeting English-speaking people... Yeah. Uh, most of the time. Otherwise, it's too expensive. 
to lose that element as a core core element of the show uh, would be a mistake. It's yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about the possibility of a Stargate program that doesn't have exploration as one of its core values, and that's seems like that was something that Deep Space Nine struggled with at least for a few years before we. You know, we got a ship on Deep Space Nine, we got the Defiant, and we're able to kind of leave the station and go out there a bit. That's the reason why I didn't watch Deep Space Nine. Hmm. My dad and I use, always watch Star Trek together, and once it stopped being about exploring, we stopped being interested. And when they got the Defiant, by, I think, Season 7, we were watching Deep Space Nine again. <laughs> so yeah. It's going to be an interesting balance that they need to strike. I'm sure they'll... Give it a good old college try. Joe Malazzi also likened the new series to something like a Battlestar Galactica in that it will be science fiction and more arc-driven than past Stargate shows have been. But he said in terms of tone, in terms of the situation, uh, the way that the stories are going to unfold, it'll be very much unlike Battlestar and more a bit like Lost. But keep in mind, he also said he's very hesitant to make even those comparisons. So I think what they're getting at is it's going to be very different from anything we've seen. I think the point to take away from this is that uh, Joe is saying that Stargate Universe is very much going to be its own show and is going to stand apart. It's not going to be Stargate's version of X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. But also keep in mind that nothing is created in a vacuum. Everything is influenced by everything. Really, that's on television. It's going to be impossible after this thing launches not to compare it to certain other things. The question is whether those things are really good or really bad. Gateworld Features. And head over to gateworld.net right now for our brand new interview with actor Cliff Simon. Cliff started his run as Ball on Stargate SG-1 back in the fifth season episode summit that's right we spent many an interview many interviews ago talking about that whole process how he got hooked in so this interview is basically talking about continuum he talks about his charities particularly karma rescue uh for um bully breed dogs and his current projects it's a good piece it is a video interview which is 28 minutes long and you can see that now on the site and for next week's interview we are bringing you bill nye the science guy Bill Nye talked with us about a month and a half ago about his guest appearance on Atlantis's season five episode, Brainstorm. That is an interview that is going to be almost an hour long. And, wow. it is in- and it is interesting, man. Let me tell you, he had me on pins and needles the entire time. That is a fascinating man to talk with. You grew up as a, as a big Bill Nye fan. I grew up I as grew, a big yes. Mr. Wizard fan on Nickelodeon. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we didn't have cable. Again, it's about an hour long. I haven't, I haven't really cut it down yet. It'll probably come down a little bit. I didn't know about the Plutoids, so I learned something there. There you guys see, we slipped in a little pedagogy. A little it was great. Thing, right that's there. right. But Neil and I are always going after each other about this stuff. Because he, he's another guy that throws around the expression trans-Neptunian. Okay, you've lost me. Trans-Neptunian means across from Neptune. But my client, and Pluto is a trans Neptunian object. Okay. But many, many of the other Kuiper Belt objects, the KBOs, out beyond Pluto, I mean, just a few, a few million kilometers, those do not cross the orbit of Neptune, and they would be not trans Neptunian, they would be ultra Neptunian. And my Latin uh. teachers would be rolling in their proverbial chalk desks over there. <laughs> This particular episode was was Martin's first outing as a director. Yeah, he was outstanding. 
He's just outstanding. He was like rolling off a log. He knew just what to do. He set it all up. And they have yeah. a very good crew there. They finish each other's sentences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody been around gets since MacGyver. Yeah, yeah they, don't, they don't uh, start beating each other up over stuff that doesn't matter. Very good crew. I thought it was really interesting. We got, we got some flack about me publishing the news story about Bill Nye talking about wormhole travel. And everyone's been like, he's not qualified. He's not qualified. I'm like, it's a puff piece, guys. Come on. <laughs> he was on Stargate Atlantis. And I think it's interesting that we hear what he thinks about it. That's all it is. Don't read into it too much. Gateworld <laughs> does a lot of things, but real world astrophysics, I wouldn't necessarily go to Gateworld. The main discussion. So, of course, we are this week talking about Stargate the movie, and why the heck are we talking about something that's now going on 15 years old this fall? Well, we were rapidly coming to the end of the fifth season of Stargate Atlantis and looking at this nice long gap between uh, Atlantis and the start of Stargate Universe, and we decided, well, we should go back and talk about all the ten seasons of SG-1 and the first four seasons of Atlantis and sort of just for, for history's sake, just kind of give our, give our opinions on those season by season. Uh, but before we do that, it seemed more than appropriate to start at the beginning. Yeah, this is not just podcast filler. This is not just something to pass the time. You know, we've, we've talked about the fifth season of Atlantis, so it makes sense to go back and uh, plug every uh, movie and every uh, season for what it's worth. I've got an idea. Now, I was interested in the fact that a lot of people who wrote in and answered our listener question this week about their first exposure to the movie, uh, a lot of them didn't see the movie until after they had already seen SG-1 or had been watching SG-1 for years in some cases. Uh, And also, a lot of our listeners now are a bit younger than than you and I, so Mm -hmm. um, they were, you know, little kids when the movie first came out. So I was they, a little kid when the movie came out. <laughs> well, you weren't a little kid. You were a kid. But, you know, some of our listeners, I don't know how, how young our listeners go, may have been pre-K when Stargate yeah. the movie came out in October of 1994. I was, mm-hmm. I, w- I just graduated from high school in 1994. I was in fifth grade when that movie came out, and I was really big on Jurassic Park at that point. Nothing else was really in my line of sight, except maybe Power Rangers. Mm-hmm. I was a big, big Star Trek fan, and mm-hmm. so Star Trek was nourishing my love of all things science fiction. I loved uh, everything Star Trek, and I loved Star Wars, and then this thing came along, and it was Stargate. It was a third yeah. thing, and I don't know. I was, I think, I was originally a little bit trepidatious because it was weird. You know, it had military stuff, a lot of, a lot of guns exploding, and it's not future. Yeah, it's, it's present. It's in a set in a desert and there's archaeology and a bunch of Egyptian design stuff going on. It was it was kind of weird, but when I saw it, you know, I loved it the first time I saw it. You know, to be perfectly honest, I don't know how I missed the movie. Because I watched a lot of television at that point. And even if I did see the trailer, which is quite possible, it just wasn't something that I was interested in seeing. Hmm. Little did I realize that it was going to be a major part of my life. And like I said in episode 28, I saw it sitting on the tape shelf at the grocery stores and at the rental stores for years and never paid it any consideration. I love the action. I love the technology. I love the humor and the characters. I think the movie has a lot of heart especially in Jackson's character and his relationship with Sharae, who at that point was Shauri. Shauri. 
and uh, played by Millie Avatar, who's very beautiful. Who is very beautiful, very exotic. I, like a lot of people, when this movie ended and Jack O'Neill steps back through the Stargate back to Earth and leaves Daniel on Abydos, I, like a lot of people, I think, thought, what's next, what's next, what's next? This is a great premise for a series because it seems like that gate ought to be able to go to lots of different places. And yet it's the only Dean Devlin movie that I've seen finish with The End. And he intended to make it a trilogy. Yeah. Or so he says now. Yeah. So a lot of us are kind of left scratching our heads over what would the Dean Devlin trilogy have been. I would love to have seen it. I still would love to see it. I have no problem with letting two continuities run, but I I know that you have a problem with it. Yeah, now that the series is going and and has been going as long as it has, I'm I'm not crazy about the idea of a movie trilogy. Why are you here? Why did they bring you on this project? I'm here in case you succeed. This movie, you know, even though I didn't see it for years later, is one of the most beautifully shot films that I have ever ever seen. A lot of the principal photography was done in Yuma, Arizona, which I've been to. Mm-hmm. Um, seen the sand dunes there, immensely gorgeous. I just wanted to park my car and walk out there into the middle of nowhere. And there are great things in the in the bonus features on the DVD where you can watch them filming in Yuma in the desert and showing how they had to get guys out there and, and brush the footprints off the sand. Mm-hmm. And they had, what was it, the, in the neighborhood of several thousand extras, some of them who would not come back. Uh, they, they had a, a lot of attrition in the extras because mm-hmm. it was just so, the, the heat was so unbearably hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the visual look of the film, I think, is really spectacular. It, it mm-hmm. It's one of, Roland Emmerich is the director, it's one of his best, I think. These guys, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, have teamed up a lot over the course of the last couple of decades to do films like Independence Day and The Patriot, I think, and Eight-Legged Freaks mm-hmm. more recently. But Stargate still, I think, obviously I'm biased, but I think Stargate is the best head and shoulders above the rest. Well, who do you think built the pyramids? I don't have any idea who built them. I mean, that's... Men from Atlantis? <laughs> or Martians, perhaps? <laughs> One of the things that, that I love most about Stargate is James Spader. And mm-hmm. it's a pity to hear him talk about the movie now because James Spader doesn't like the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. He thought that the script was bad and he did it for the paycheck. But his performance in this has some really terrific subtleties. There's things like uh, he's kind of laughing giddily in the briefing room when he's, he's explaining his discovery to all these suits. Uh, okay. All right, we're obviously looking at a picture of the cover stones. Now, on the outer track, these figures that you would believe to be words to be translated were, in fact... Sorry about that. Were, in fact, star constellations. You know, the subtlety of the way he delivers dialogue in, in, in talking to himself, like when he makes the discovery of, of the constellation Orion on the, cart- on the cartouche. Mm-hmm. And hey guys, why didn't you realize that uh, that one-seventh symbol, all you had to do was make 39 tries, and hey, one of them would be it, that, the biggest flaw of the film yeah, in, there's, in terms of concept. There's definitely some nitpicks, and that's, that's one. We could dial the six that we found on the cartouche, mm-hmm. six right in a row, but... This is as far as we have ever been able to get. Exactly. You know, going back to the acting, James Spader aside, I really felt that the acting in Stargate was really average. Really? Yeah. I do not watch that film for its acting. It's 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 fine, but in no way to me is it outstanding. 
I don't like the military being portrayed as a bunch of dark in a, in a darkened room smoking idiots. I have a real problem with that. I thought General West was you're on the team. That's that's basically all it is. Those sorts of things really demonstrate sort of the the Dean Devlin mentality of doing kind of a pop summer blockbuster movie and it's mm-hmm. just sort of some of the some of those dialogue choices are I think kind of lowest common denominator. But I, I, I liked James Spader. I, I'm, I'm, I have never been a huge Kurt Russell fan. I don't go out of my way to see a movie that he's in. But I enjoyed James Spader. I thought he did a great job. And Michael Shanks went on to impersonate him and exceed him amazingly well. Mm-hmm. And we get some actor holdovers in the series. We get uh, Eric Avari as Kasuf. Kasuf in the movie sometimes. I think his name is pronounced a little bit differently every time you hear it in the film. Ah! When Skara is has first met the team and he's he's running away to to try and find Kasuf, he's yelling at him, and it sounds like he's he's almost yelling Gadzooks. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Skara gets held over into the TV series too. What's that dude's name? Skara, Alexis Cruz. Alexis Cruz. Richard Kind's Gary Myers. Richard would later appear on Atlantis as a completely different character. Mm-hmm. Though I think it would have been more interesting if he came back as Gary Myers. Yeah, that would have been cool. And then, of course, we get some recasting. Uh, Share makes it over. Shaori makes it over as Share, which I thought was a bit uh, a bit dumbed down. Her character, both in the name Altair and in the, in the portrayal, was made very bland yeah. in the television yeah. series. Excusing the nude scene, which was not Brad and Jonathan's idea. Yeah, it well, certainly was not bland. <laughs> and uh, let's see, Catherine Langford also makes an appearance, and she's lo- completely lost her German-slash-Swedish accent. I know. Uh, uh, Vivica Lindfors originally played that role, and uh, when I had the, the awesome, awesome privilege of talking with Elizabeth Hoffman about that role, the producers specifically asked her not to, um, to bring back the accent. Again, her character in the movie is so subtle and so understated. It feels like a smarter movie than a lot of people end up giving it credit for. It mm-hmm. it ends up getting passed off a lot of times as just sort of a lowbrow summer action movie. Uh, but, yeah. but, you know, Vivica Linfer's performance and the subtleties of, of what she brought to just her few scenes, I think, mm-hmm. makes it a, a strong film. Yeah, it was a great piece of work on her part. Her and Daniel had a had a great chemistry with one another. You know, she's trying to give him a second chance. He's not believing in himself, and she knows this entire time your theories are right. Now let me let you prove it. I have something for you. No, I. Yes, I found it with Stargate when I was a child. It has brought me luck. You can bring it back to me. Ra makes a few appearances eventually in the television series, uh, and this is Jay Davidson, who I guess had made a name for himself in The Crying Game. Ra is a really interesting character. Uh, I love that he never speaks English. We never get him translated or dumbed down at all. He's vicious. He's not. He has no qualms about killing his own guys, about uh, you know using little kids as human shields. Yeah, he's he's one of those ultimate evil kind of guys, but you don't mind that he's ultimate evil because he does it so well he's really cutthroat and that scene where where he confronts daniel and ends up yanking the eye of raw necklace off of daniel's neck is is i think one of my favorite scenes in the movie
finish. And this character actually is one of the things about the transition to SG-1 that I wasn't as crazy about. One of the things that made me not care as much for the TV version of Stargate when I first saw Children of the Gods because it seemed like as interesting of a character as he was in his own right, Apophis was no raw. Yeah, he wasn't. What did you think of French Stewart in Stargate the movie? Most people will recognize French Stewart as... The Third Rock. Uh, I can't remember his character's name, but but the weird brother in Third Rock. I really wish French had transferred to the television series. I think Ferretti would have been a much more interesting character. Not to say that Brent State didn't do a bang-up job. He certainly did. He wasn't particularly written very very much in the series. Uh, I know. I know. He, he it was played, that's a shame. He played a bit of a of a key plot role in Children of the Gods, uh, when they get attacked by the Gould, and then he has to. We have to get him to recover so that we can try and figure out the address that Apophis went to uh, that leads mm-hmm. us to Chulak. But yeah, he, he makes a few more appearances in the show, and Ferretti was just kind of a non-character in SG-1. Had French returned to play it, I don't know if they offered it to him. I think there's a chance that he would have become a much more um, developed character and more more interesting in the process. But I, I liked in the movie, he's so doom and gloom. You know, I can't believe we're stuck here. Don't be such a doomsayer, Ferretti. Yeah, give me rest. Yes, please. We're not back soon. You just turn on the gate from the other side. Oh, no. It doesn't work that way. You see, if you don't turn it on from here, we're screwed. Okay? So I'm telling you guys, we're not going anywhere. So. I think he does a great job in the movie of playing the this sort of stereotyped, uh, two-dimensional military guy who's who's in the field and is kind of pissed off about it, about what's going on around him. I think he's pissed off that he's stuck. Yeah. But what still throws me is French acts the part perfectly, um, mm-hmm. but you know physically he's kind of a small guy and he's he's got kind of you know scrawny white arms. Bunny, bunny way, bunny way, bunny way. I think one of the uh, more interesting things about the transition from the movie to the. Uh, television series is all the inconsistencies and and throughout the television series they've done a great deal to try and explain a lot of things from the movie that were changed about the television series one of my favorite ones is in is in solitudes where hammond and uh daniel are standing around talking about why the um why the building doesn't shake anymore when the stargate reaches its for its seventh chevron mm-hmm. they installed dampeners around the gate to prevent that from happening mm-hmm. so the gate still does shake you just don't see it little explanations like that and then there are some that you just can't explain away you know the stargate has now red chevrons and on the back side it looks like it should but on the front it's uh, it's changed a little bit the, uh, the constellations are raised instead of indented um, yeah, and obviously the the, uh, the sound effects are very different if, yeah. you, if you pay close attention to the film uh, when the Death Gliders come out to do their strafing run on Abydos. Their launch from the mothership is now the sound that the TV show uses for when the wormhole disengages. Wormhole disengaged. And the Stargate is now housed in a nearly identical-looking facility in Cheyenne Mountain instead of in Creek Mountain. Yeah, you and I went round and round and round about this when we were writing for the Omnipedia. The idea is that the Stargate hasn't been moved anywhere. They just changed the name of the mountain? Yeah, that's right. They, well, they just <laughs> changed the location from the movie to the series. I, I was just just after you, like, what do you think they did, Darren? you think they sent it to another mountain just so that they could put a tarp over it? 
<laughs> no, they would have put it in storage. Let's just accept it for what it is and move on. You can't explain everything. You just can't do it. No, you can't. But I think if there's any possibility of explaining a continuity gaffe, then you got to go with it for the sake of, of continuity. Chicken. 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 Chicken man, you got it. Another thing that a lot of people obviously notice is Ra and his true nature at the very end when he, he, yeah. he drops his, his host. The uh, aboriginal boy that he took from Earth 10,000 years ago. He's like a big full-size alien who kind of looks like a, a Roswell Gray, who now, of course, we know as Asgard. This is one of those that I think the television show does much, much better because it's, it's very implausible to me that a, a full-size, you know, maybe three-foot alien is going to somehow possess a human body like a host versus mm -hmm. a snake in the head is a little bit more plausible. It was a great transition. I think the the Gould as as a concept were just a great part of of SG one. And obviously, there are no Jaffa in the movie. Raw preferred humans for some strange reason, which which they which they continue to answer to in the season eight two parter, Mobius. When he returned, he does have Jaffa, but he also has humans. That's right. Yeah. The other thing on the on the translation from the movie to the television show that I really miss is. Obviously, when you've got you've got the film and you've got the budget of a feature film, you can do a whole lot more with the civilization of Abydos. It's a huge city, obviously a very rich culture. You know, we've got their animals, we've got the mastage, the giant beast of burden, and the size and grandeur of of the Abydonian civilization is is really lost. I think once we make the transition to television. Oh, it's it's tense, you know. All it is is tense. I think there's one shot of Nagata, their city, and that's is it. it? Yes, there's a shot. There's a shot of Nagata in the in the television series. In Children of the Gods, um, not in Children of the Gods. I believe it was Secrets. Hmm. But beyond tents in the television series, the Abidonians never really have uh, enclosures of any kind. Uh, and that again, that's with it with a TV budget. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to do the best you can with it. You, you can't have shots all the time where the horizon is is visible because then you get power lines and you get you get buildings and you get vehicles and things like that so <laughs> they can't go down to yuma all the time that's that's one of the it's one of those things about um shooting in vancouver is that budget but uh i think universe should have something interesting for its pilot in terms of a desert yeah excuse me colonel o'neill we're from general west's office sir we're here to inform you that you've been reactivated now what do you think about jack o'neill's journey in this film he he starts out very dark he's looks like he's contemplating suicide because his kid has died and there's another one of those inconsistencies as we pan through his son's room that he's tyler. sitting in we see the the certificate it says tyler o'neill well i'm not sure if if brad and jonathan maybe didn't notice that but once we get to the TV yeah series, it's one of those he's, where he's charlie o'neill right you you have to ask yourself now why would they create an additional inconsistency you know i'm sure there's a reason behind that i'm sure i'm sure they they watched that movie from stem to stern several times mm -hmm. um but as far as his journey for him to find redemption in killing a bad guy that i'm he's going to go home and everything's going to be okay everything's not going to be okay he's his, his personality is going to change how he looks at the world how he feels about his life is definitely going to change you know he's lost his kid we don't we don't know the relationship 
um, that they had. We don't know how close to each other they were, but it's pretty obvious that they participated in a lot of extracurricular stuff together, and he was a big part of his life. I think the last line of dialogue and how they exchange it with one another, you know, are, are you going to be okay? Yeah, I think I am. Or however it was, I'm not specifically sure. He puts his chin up and says, see you around, Dr. Jackson. So he's mm-hmm. the, the character's going to be okay, and that's a nice arc. Yeah, I'm glad they did it, and I'm glad they brought him to that, that place where he said, you know, I think I'm going to be okay. Uh, he's yeah. really through this experience. He's turned a corner, but it is kind mm-hmm. of it is kind of out of the blue. I mean, right up until the climax of the movie, he is ready to, you know, he flips the switch on the bomb and he's ready to die. He's ready to stay there mm-hmm. and make sure that it goes off. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of I'm not sure what it is about about throwing down with the Jaffa who's not really a Jaffa. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. And then blowing up Ra's ship. I'm not really sure why that makes a big difference. I think a lot of well, it has to do with Jack. Yeah, it has to do with Scara. And Scara was sort of the, you know, he's a young guy. He's, he's kind of like shepherd boy. The, the son that, that Jack lost in some ways. And throughout the movie, he, he treats him like a little kid. And he doesn't want him to, you know, be handling weapons or anything. Scara proves that he can, he can handle himself. Yeah, Scara proves himself. And, and Jack, you know, sort of recognizes him as, as a, a capable adult. I guess. Mm-hmm. In helping that, that entire civilization survive, thousands of people praising you and thanking you, you know, that, that gratitude, I, th- I think he realized that um, his life could still have meaning mm. and that he has to go on. If he doesn't, he's dead, either at the bottom of a bottle or down the barrel of a gun. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, that was a good move for that character. And it, and it led to great episodes like Cold Lazarus. You know, O'Neill gets taken over by an alien, and the alien is, is so, so aware of, of the fight in Jack's mind that the first thing it does when it gets into his head is it goes and sees Sarah. Mm-hmm. I need to find Charlie. There, there's something wrong with my host. Mm-hmm. We, we must fix this. Yeah, because that's a so, hurt in him that hasn't been healed yet. Sarah O'Neill was one of those characters that I was really disappointed that we never got to see more of in, in Stargate. Yeah, you know, It was one of those where we want to figure this out and then we need to move on. I think Sarah could have been a really interesting character moving in and out of the seasons every few years. Mm. Really interesting. Even though Richard Dean Anderson came to the role and said, you know, I can't do what Kurt Russell did, yeah, both in terms of the hair and in terms of... <laughs> of <laughs> the the darkness with which Kurt had to play the role. I think that was great, but what I love is that that story of Jack's history remains a, a fundamental part of the character. And so I think about, mm-hmm. you know, the the conclusion of season four's window of opportunity when Jack is is confronting the, the guy who's activated the ancient time loop machine. I'm staring at that screenshot right now on our homepage. Yeah, and he shouts at him, I lost my son. You know, I know what you're going through. I think that's a fantastic moment. And it never lives through it again. It comes Mm -hmm. out of Stargate the movie. You had accepted the fact that no matter what happened, you would not be going home. Don't you have people who care about you? Do you have a family? I have a family. No one should ever have to outlive their own child. I don't want to die. Your men don't want to die. And these people here don't want to die. It's a shame you're in such a hurry, too. How about Daniel Jackson? Left out of academia, finds his theories to be correct, saves his civilization, gets the girl. Good movie. There's no girl for Jack. <laughs> yeah, I think he's done for a while. Jack gets uh, to be the fisticuffs hero. I liked that Daniel stayed. 
that he the found. The nerd himself. gets the girl. Isn't this why we love this movie? The nerd gets the girl instead of the jock. It's certainly a part of it. <laughs> uh, I haven't thought of that in a while. But his journey is is one of the more rewarding ones. I love the love story between Daniel and Shari. Just change the vowels and you can communicate. Yeah, once you know the vowels. I mean, she's they were really she's good together. The, the alien princess who is is given to him because he seems to be a representative of the gods. And he turns it down. He turns her down, but, you know, tries to oh, find man. a way to not reject her. In... On the look on Kossif's face. That's another one of those things that I thought the show lost was 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 Kossif's humor. Yeah, I think Eric is is exceptionally funny, and you can see that on stage at any convention that he goes to. You know, just something. Well, that's one of those things that I miss. And then you go through the course of the story, and and Daniel and Charé really have a chance to to start to get to know each other a bit, and I think to fall in love for real. Mm-hmm. And it became one of those fundamental elements of the show that relationship. If if you yeah. didn't see. At least for the first yeah. few years. Well, exactly. I mean, if you didn't see their relationship, if you didn't see the movie, you wouldn't care nearly as much about Daniel getting Sharae back. No, because again, I think I think the the character of Sharae in the television series was was made to be kind of flat and bland. And so when we meet her in Children of the Gods and she gives Daniel a big kiss on the lips, that's kind of all that we really see of her. We only know that relationship through Daniel in the series. We know how much he loves his wife and wants to find her and rescue her. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, we don't really see their relationship all that much. There's a, there's a little bit in Secrets, I think it gets good. Yeah, she had a lot more to do in Secrets than she did in the pilot. Now that leads to my favorite moment, I think, in the entire movie, which is this one right here. What are you doing? Jackson, wait for me. Ah, yes. What's your favorite Good moment? moment? What's your favorite moment from Stargate? My favorite moment is right here. No one should ever have to outlive their own child. That's the one right there. Very poignant moment. It's the deepest those characters go in that movie. That is, yeah. It's it's Daniel's deepest moment and it's Jack's deepest moment, I think. And of course, Daniel's decision to take Shari's dead body up to Ra's ship and, and revive her in the sarcophagus leads to another Stargate the movie nitpick, which is Ra's complete and total lack of ship security. <laughs> There's this hilarious all shot. Busy outside fighting. Yeah, after Daniel takes her out of the sarcophagus and is walking back to the rings, there's this hilarious shot of Ra in his throne room watching Daniel walk down the hall. With Charé. Yeah. <laughs> what is he doing? Where does he think he's going? That did not surprise me at all. You know, A, they were all out fighting. And B, Ra is just so... He thinks he is in control. He doesn't expect anyone to have the pair to to do that on his ship you know any of the abidonians they wouldn't do anything like that he wasn't expecting an off-worlder with with no reservation to to just be walking around yeah which also goes a long way toward explaining how we get in a position where we're able to nuke him at the end because he's not used to dealing with people a with our level of technology and b with with the stones to, to try something like that yeah we're not scared of him we know what he's doing 
Not to mention the fact that, you know, he thought that his, his big bad Anubis guard was taking care of business down there and certainly didn't expect him to, to lose control of his his uh, ring activation device. Well, just getting his trachea cleaned out. <laughs> what a disgusting shot. Now, you're a big music man. Tell me what you think of the score, David Arnold. It was fine. Really? It was grand. It was... Um... I liked a lot of the African chanting. I thought that was very interesting. Mm. That's my favorite part of listening to that soundtrack. But overall, I don't really find myself putting the music in that often. Yeah. There's the discovery theme that that plays when Daniel is shown the cover stone. Uh, That's probably my favorite musical piece from the show. And I'm going to cue it so that it's playing over the background right now. That was probably my favorite. But by and large, I prefer Joel's music over Arnold's. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arnold's has a has a sweeping grandeur about it that is large scale. Yeah, it's uh, appropriate for the occasion. Very appropriate. I'm, I'm not I'm not tallying that against him, but Joel is is much more character focused. When he does tight character moments, you can always expect those high piano keys. You know that's that's something that he's kind of basically like Pavlov's dog kind of trained me to expect over the years. <laughs> and it's something that I long for and it's something that I enjoy. Mm. The fact that it's a little bit smaller scale, you know, it has its charm. I'm really interested in the fact that a lot of our listeners uh, have only seen the movie on, on DVD, which means usually the special edition of it. Uh, yes. And they saw it after they were watching SG-1 and understood RDA to be Jack O'Neill and Michael Shanks to be Daniel Jackson. You know, it was years before I ever saw the special edition of this movie. Uh, and there's some some really interesting things that are put back in. The special edition, the director's cut is about nine minutes longer than the original yes. theatrical. The opening of the film is completely different. Um, the original theatrical is missing, I believe, the original opening. Uh, yes. Set in 8000 BC where the ship arrives on Earth and the village scatters and uh, the aboriginal boy walks toward the light. It's picked up again and re-shown. A few shots of it are re-shown as Daniel yes. is telling Ra's story in yes. the catacombs, in the caves. Um, but that entire sequence is at the front part of the movie. Well, they were trying to bring it down to time, and it was just redundant information when you include Daniel's explanation in the middle of the film. Yeah. Ra's origins and what happened on Earth. And the other major cut scene was uh, when the sandstorm is about to hit. The Abedonians know that this is coming. They're used to it happening, and so our guys... are not locking the soldiers in. Our guys get to get up and leave the city, and the Abedonians won't let them go out. The soldiers freak out. Yeah, they think it's a threat. They think they're they're taking them hostage. Yeah, and it even leads at one point to, I think it's Kowalski who, you know, discharges his firearm. He shoots into the ground. It's Alexis Cruz's Scara who's who's trying to explain what the heck it is. Yeah. I can't communicate with them yet. Yeah. The other little thing that got removed uh in the theatrical version is uh when Daniel tells General West that he will be able to bring them back home. Jack O'Neill turns around and walks past West and there's there's nothing. Or I think in the, I think in the theatrical the line is something like it's your call and in the the DVD version now, the director's cut that we all have, Jack's line is, he's full of That shit. wasn't in the feature? No. I think the theatrical, the line was, it's your call. They changed the line. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. I love that line change. And then he says, you're on the team. Because it speaks volumes about Jack's initial relationship with Daniel and his, his expectation. I mean, he went mm-hmm. to Abydos expecting that, that Daniel was just... You're a lion, son of a bitch! You didn't say a word about finding anything! Exactly that. 
full of it. Let's go to another planet, because how many people get to do this? And hey, I've got nothing to lose. I've got no apartment. Jackson, I think you better take a look at this. That's it? That's what we're looking for. They must have hidden it here in hopes that one day the gate on Earth could be reopened. Wait a minute. Where's the seventh symbol? Overall, what do you think of Stargate the movie? Very, very good film. Does it hold up 15 years later? It does. Yeah, it's a good, solid film. The visual effects still hold up. You know, the story is good. It does have that flavor of a popcorn summer blockbuster, but that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It spawned a wonderful franchise. I think it, it gets a bad rap a lot, especially from people who are not science fiction fans. They, they look at it as sort of bottom-of-the-barrel, summer, mindless action fare. And it's much more than that. When you look at James Spader's performance, when you look at uh, you know, some of the subtleties of, of you know, the romance, the relationship with Charé, um, I think that Stargate is a very well done, very, in 1994, a very original, pure science fiction film. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, it's, got, it's got so many moments that just still make my spine tingle, even though I've seen it a hundred times. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, when Daniel holds up the newspaper and says, Orion, and that light just goes on over his head, it's got so many of those little moments, and so many of them belong to, to Daniel Jackson and James Spader, that I mm. think he, that character in particular carries this film, but I still love it. Listener mail. Well, that's what we think of Stargate the movie, and last week we asked you to write in and tell us what you think. Quaid1 says, I started watching Stargate during season 3 syndication, after which I then saw the Stargate movie. Although it was a decent movie, I think it would have been better had I not seen SG-1 first. The movie didn't have the same qualities as SG-1, and I am not a fan of Kurt Russell or James Spader, although Spader did do a good job portraying Jackson. Now I could totally see that. If I had seen SG-1 first, and especially if I would watched it for a few years, I could see that, that it would be really hard to go back and watch the movie. I think it's interesting he says Spader did do a good job portraying Jackson. I think that's mainly because Michael Shanks did a good job impersonating Spader. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mac Jackson says, I was lucky enough to watch the Stargate movie right before I saw the first episode of the series in syndication. I remember being told it was a cross between Star Wars and Indiana Jones. However, I never saw the comparison. It felt like a well-done movie that was more of a pilot for a series instead of a self-contained movie. I remember first thinking, I hope RDA doesn't play O'Neill as stiff as Russell did, and I got my wish. Chaos Knight 13 says, My first time viewing Stargate was after I was already hooked on the series by Season 7. My first impression upon seeing Kurt Russell and James Spader was, Why are they different actors? I thought RDA and Michael Shanks were Jack and Daniel, not these bums. <laughs> it took me until after the movie and seeing the pilot in syndication that I realized how big a role the movie would play in my enjoyment of the franchise. And since then, I have not missed an episode. And Dimbo Sama says, I was really young when Stargate came out, but I was absolutely entranced by it. So naturally, I was overjoyed when SG-1 started. I'm going to have to say I didn't picture it being such a big part of my life. But then looking back, I can't imagine growing up without me and my family gathered around it every week. And we have a voicemail from Jedi Master Braytac. Hello, this is Jedi Master Braytac from England, uh, sitting here talking to my computer in response to this week's listener question. 
the first little Stargate film, I didn't like it. When I watched it this afternoon, I didn't like it. The main thing, really, for me is I don't find it entertaining. If the film doesn't entertain me, I don't think it's doing its job. Um, it's quite a rare case of a spin-off being better than the original, and I do believe SG-1 is better than the film in almost every respect, the almost because well, Shari is hotter in the film, but that's really not a valid point. I just prefer Richard Dean Anderson, I, I don't, I've not met a person who doesn't prefer Richard Dean Anderson. Thanks to Jedi Master Braytac for calling in and for everyone for posting your comments. Here is this week's listener question for next week's discussion. We'll be talking about fan conventions, of course, Stargate conventions in particular. GateWorld Forum's Tammy Farrar will be back for that one. Have you ever been to a Stargate or other science fiction fan convention? Which ones, and how would you describe that experience to a non-convention goer? And once again, that'll be next week's podcast topic on February 17th. We'll be excited to have Tammy back. Tammy Farrar. And on February 24th, we're talking about The Ideal Universe, what we think the new show that premieres this fall needs to do and to be for the Stargate franchise. Then on March 3rd, we'll continue our History of Stargate lesson with uh, the first season of SG-1. And thanks for joining David and me once again for this week's podcast. Give us a call on the podcast feedback hotline. If you have an answer to this week's listener question or anything else Stargate-related you want to talk about, that number is 616-712-1647, or you can head over to GateWorld Forum and post on the podcast feedback thread. In this episode, we talked about Stargate the movie and gave you a preview of our upcoming interview with Bill Nye. For links to everything we talked about today, head to GateWorld.net and look for the episode number 29 show notes. From GateWorld, this is Darren Sumner. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast. <laughs>